Hello again, and welcome to the Inventor Podcast, a podcast for, by, and about founders and the hellish nightmare lives they lead. This week, I have the wonderful pleasure of sitting down with one of Inventor's own, the founder and president of Falconer, Mr. Chuck Withy. Had some whiskey with Mr. Withy today. We go through his entire you know, career in banking and what he's been doing at Falconer on the capital advisory side. Some fascinating work that he's done all throughout his career. Um, we talked some about his his uh, foray into the world of Harvard MBAs and and helping folks get get set up right after school. Um, a wonderful guy, one that I personally consider a mentor. Um, please give it up for Chuck and enjoy. Very, it's very hard to get this. By the way, you know they don't just give it to anybody. <laughs> Do you mind if I go grab a yeah? Cup I figured I'd- do it. Yeah, do your thing. Yeah. Chuck, um, cheers. 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 Clink. I see your rocks, man. Yeah, um, I am. So, whiskey with Withy. I like it. So, so Chuck, all right. So, I, I think, you know, I probably know your story better than anyone um, at, at Nth. Maybe, maybe Ian excluded. But for the world... I think they would love to know what in the world created Chuck. Um, I want to know, you know, how you initially got into banking and like what the, what those first, first kind of deals were, um, that kind of cut your teeth on. Yeah. Um, yeah. That, that's a story I would love to hear. It's completely by accident how I got in banking. So I had a, an advanced accounting professor, uh, aptly named Dr. Hammer. And he was good, and I got a good grade. And he had a fraternity brother named Buzz Harrington. And Buzz, Hollis E. Harrington III, was the CEO and chairman of the Indian Head Bank. And in New Hampshire, that was the commercial bank, right? So he goes, Buzz, take the kid. He got an A in my class. At least interview him. And they did. And I got a field examination job in asset-based lending. It was my first start. I thought it'd be pretty cool because, you know, I'm going to be in traveling around the state auditing, you know, small, medium and mid-market companies. And I thought it'd be fun. And it was. It actually got me started in commercial bank. So uh, off, I, off I went. And a year later, I joined the uh, financial credit analyst team in, in this training program, which was outstanding. And that got me in commercial banking. And my first job was as a commercial lender in asset-based lending, which is the hardcore of commercial banking. <laughs> so, you know, I, I, uh, yeah, you know, that, yeah. so that started it all out. And what kept me in it for 30, almost 37 years was the diversity of different kinds of clients, different kinds of businesses. No story was the same. You know, there, there was this uh, talk years and years ago, like real estate got homogenized and got, you know, syndicated, whereas commercial banking never could because there was no two deals the same. Right. And that's that's what kept me uh, going. And and throughout my career, um, I had different experiences. I had experiences at um, KeyBank, 
for example. And Key, I was head of middle market for a large group, and it was a ball, uh, and I learned a ton. But I kind of like being back with the small to medium enterprise. And anyway, my last 18 years, is, as you know, was with Bank Prov, which is a billion seven, um, very niche bank. And I had a lot of entrepreneurial fun with that. And it started as a $240 million bank when I, you know, when I began there. You know, where you got your lollipops and, you, you know, you got opened your savings account and they said, can we turn this into a commercial bank? And, you know, without any acquisitions, we did. And we, we brought it up to a, a very high level niche commercial bank, which I'm proud of and was so much fun that, you know, no one thinks of banking as entrepreneurial, but it, that's all it is. Oh, yeah. I mean, depending on where you are, it certainly can be. I was talking to a, a friend of mine the other day who uh, moved back to uh, to Corpus. Um, that, was a few, that was a few years younger. or um, And he, he was a credit analyst, you know, at, at B of A down here. Or, or was it American Bank? I think it might be American Bank. But he was like, man, I wish somebody, you know, in, in, in school just would have told me that, you know, so much of this stuff is just, they're just lying through their teeth, like all the time. <laughs> he was like, I can't believe the stuff that I see. I mean, it's just incredible. He was like, you know, they teach you the the five C's and then, you know, they just teach you, hey, like, you know, don't listen to these kids. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's pretty wild. I mean, I, I think that um, one of the highest level skills you can have as a, as a commercial banker and as a even as a, a leader is being able to discern the BS, you know, and yeah, you, you have quantitative things, but there are qualitative things about the people you deal with. And, you know, I shared that trust matrix with you and I strongly believe that if you can, if you can discern that in a conversation or in some actions, boy, that, that'll go a long way with success with whoever you're dealing with. Yeah, I, I I wouldn't be surprised if, if you know your articulation of it be kind of kind of becomes you know the the standard uh, trust matrix out there in the world. I, I think it's pretty good. Um, and you know an, another thing that I I think is interesting about um, you know about about the the journey that you had in banking and, and business in general. You, you talked about the diversity of it. And uh, no disrespect to to other you know professions, et cetera, but I just feel like business requires you to understand so much about about the world because you know they're just they're all different, you know, and 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 the and you you have to learn so much about you know math and and people and how things are efficient and you know how it interacts with the I like. I I just don't know that there's another profession out there that's that's similarly situated the way that if you do a profession that touches really intimately on on a lot of different businesses like banking does it just it teaches you so much about the world or or it requires a lot out of you to know about the world if you want to be at all you know uh, effective so that's something that I've always that kind of drew me to it when I when I applied to business school at UT back you know when, when I was going to school I I wrote on because you know because is like you know a great school everybody's you know very competitive um, so I had automatic admit to UT, but not to the business school. And so they had, you know, you had to go to a separate thing. And I remember writing on my, um, my essay, I was like, 
I have no idea what I want to do, but I feel like this is probably keeps the most doors open. And they're like, oh, yeah, he kind of gets it, I think. So, <laughs> you know, that's that was how I wrote my essay. And that's the exact right answer, because as I mentioned to you, that business takes you where you want to go uh, or where it wants to go. And you have to be malleable and you have to be flexible um, and open to it. Right. And that's the same with careers. You know, I had no idea. I was just open to this guy I trusted who was my, you know, professor who said, you know, Buzz is a great guy and it's a great bank. You'll learn a lot. You know, in the midst of things, you know, as an accounting major with some, I had a math major as well. They they push you towards things, either actuarial studies or being a CPA. <laughs> Neither one of those were going to, you know, nothing against either one, but that wasn't going to, that wasn't going to cut it when I learned what each of those professions, you know, did daily. So anyway, so it worked out amazingly well. And, and how did I get here? <laughs> Which is a very entrepreneurial uh, thing. So, you know, uh, that's, it's a great question. I think I have a, a decent answer for it. So, you know, when you retire, and I retired fairly young, you know, I guess, um, after being in intense, fun, you know, work, I had two weeks of waking up going, <laughs> my wife would go, what are you going to do today? I'm like, I was shaking. I don't know. You know, I, was, I started writing a couple of books and they're still underway. And I started doing other things that I've dreamed of doing in my retirement. But I'm just not a good retired guy. I've got, you know, my brain goes in a minute. <laughs> so anyway. I answered, I answered an ad for, you know, CrowdSurf Capital's board of directors or board of advisors. And, you know, and our conversation ensued and you guys intrigued me unbelievably. Uh, I liked your business thesis, which I'd never heard much like it before. But a radical alignment did appeal to me because without it, you know, you, you can be misaligned, you know, but you have to really get people thinking about it and on board with it, right? But I was happy to see that we have um, very much. And so I, I give you a lot of credit, frankly, for developing that thesis, you know, as a studio thesis and, and then look, look what's going on. So I couldn't be happier with that, <laughs> by the way, you know, and I think it was, um, it was, it was Christmas Eve. I got a, a note from you that was very nice. Sam saying, you know, let's uh, let's let's do this thing, <laughs> right? And yep, let's talk a little while later, and and uh, you know, here we are. I think that's right. I think I remember, um, yeah, the, the the eggnog references. So that must have been exactly right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, but it was it was exactly Christmas Eve. I remember getting it. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I I didn't remember that. That was Christmas Eve. Yeah, that's. That goes to show that we, you know, my biggest criticism of myself in banking was I, I pushed too hard too fast for bankers. Um, but it also got a lot done. So when you said this is drinking through the fire hose and this is going to be really fast, I was like, okay, <laughs> let's do it. Yeah. And it just like, it, it, it attracts people that I think have um, 
have found like a uh, an alignment between the work that they're doing and their their life in 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 general. If you were just spending, you know, the amount of life energy, you know, doing something that that wasn't like very personally rewarding, I, it's not sustainable either. You know what I mean? So it's like I I, I remember well. You know me, I, I annoyingly always quote Buffett, but I I, uh, I know one of the things he would say, you know, when they were evaluating acquisitions, they had, you know, they weren't going to replace management. They weren't going to be doing anything along those lines. And, you know, usually they're buying out like the first owner or maybe the second generation, what have you, but they're deeply entrenched in management. And they would talk about the fact that they had to decide, you know, pretty quickly whether this person, you know, love the work that they did or, or love money, you know, <laughs> because if they love money, they would probably just ride off into the sunset. Uh, but if, the, if they, if they deeply loved the work that they were doing, um, you know, then, then they would have a great, a great, you know, profitable thing. And, and, and I think they've had, you know, that recipe I think is really interesting and says a lot about, you know, you know, we're talking about one of the most successful investment companies of all time, you know, um, finding people that aren't all that interested in making money, you know, it's, 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 it's very interesting. Well, yeah. I mean, I've followed Buffett for years, love the guy and his, what I liked most about him is his favorite thing to do was to stay home, watch a movie and eat popcorn on the couch. And the guy could have afforded anything he wanted to do ever. And he never lost that just regular guy uh, feature, which, you know, and he was, he was humble in, in a smart way. He wasn't, you know, ah shucks humble. He was humble in knowing that, you know, the money was great, but life's, you know, more important in people. And as you said, his evaluation of people who he hired, you know, even his longtime chief operating officer, who's a brilliant, brilliant guy who's older than him, and, and they're both still working. I think he, the CEO's in his 90s, and of course, Warren's in his 80s, um, maybe approaching 90 by now. But here's the deal. You can't be working that long without loving. You, you, you just can't be. And, and, you, and if it were about greed and money, um, you know, you'd be doing different things with it, you know, while you're younger. He's basically, his passion, his hobby, his vocation all rests with investing. <laughs> it's everything. You know, it's, it's you know, he, I think he's right. even said it. I'm pretty boring. I, my hobby's investing, my job's investing, and <laughs> right? So, you know, um, to, to sort of in the same channel for me, the reason I'm so happy and enjoying this so much is dealing with small to medium businesses up to mid-market and watching them succeed helping them succeed, I could do it till I'm 90 because that's, that's, that's a hobby. Well, and one of the things that was very clarifying when, you know, when you put your, your unit, your OP1, you know, plan together was talking about and in, in like the people section that, you know, it's one of the competitive advantages is, you know, the work that we're doing is, is so fulfilling that we, you know, we have that advantage in, in the, you know, labor market, if you will, that, you know, we're, we're creating this place where you can do wonderful things. You know, it's not only, you know, all the, all the, inth, you know, comp wrapper and things like that. But, you know, the, the day-to-day work is something that's incredibly fulfilling, you know, you know, what you're doing with the folks that are coming through the gate hot and heavy yeah. already. And right. If people feel that way, 
then they're the right person. If they think, you know, that doesn't make any sense to me, then they're not the right person, you know. So I don't know if you've ever uh, read Gary Keller's little tiny book. It's called The One Thing. Have you read that? No, I've heard it. I've heard a couple of like long podcasts with him and he sounds like a great guy. It's a very simple read. It's a weekend read, you know, with a cup of coffee. It's not a a war and peace novel. But the concept is, you know, focusing, you know, on what is important, right? I mean, EOS does it with the rocks and and the sand and so forth. But this, it had a very, very elemental thing. It had your creation of your one thing, the most important thing in your world. And then your one, your, there's a series of one things under that, that lead to it. Um, so years ago, I was part of a CEO group and it was a great group. They were out of the university of New Hampshire and small, medium businesses, all types. And we had a guy that ran a huge lobster pound to a guy that ran a manufacturing plant, um, you know, with tape and so on. But it was, it's the most fun four plus years that I had in, in that kind of venue. And this guy that ran it, who led it, another brilliant guy, older guy that was retired. So he was sort of the guy that, you know, got us together. And we would do, uh, once a month, we'd do a book club. And so I decided to let everybody read the one thing. And, and so his, his challenge to everybody was, look, we're all busy execs. We're assuming everybody reads it. But if they don't, we don't want to leave them out. So you have to come up with, you know, sort of the Cliff Notes version of it. So, <laughs> so I wrote, I said, okay, then I'm going to have a little fun with this. And I called it the Chuck Notes. And we had, um, I still have it. And it, it's, I, I, I refer to my little Chuck Notes here and there so I don't have to reread the book. But, it, for, you know, when you teach, you know this, you, you learn more when you teach. So, or, and when you write these Cliff Notes, you learn a lot more because you've got to be concise. Um, but one of the things that forces you to do to, is your overarching one thing in life. That's what they, you know, it's, Gary wants you to do to start with. And so I was with my oldest daughter, who's 28, and I said, I don't, I guess I know what my one thing is. She goes, Dad, it's really simple. Your th- one thing is you want to make people successful. That's all you've ever done. And I said, well, that's pretty cool, honey. Thanks for that. She goes, no, no, Dad. And the best part is you let them do it on their terms. Because, you know, she was talking about herself. And I said, that's my one thing. To make people successful on their terms. That's my one thing. If you can do that with employees, with customers, with friends, with family, that's pretty cool. I I think that's... Fantastic. And, and I and I see you replicate that. And probably the most interesting thing about that, too, is that you're not only impacting the people that you're directly making successful and, and them, and you know, going and having their impact. But I think at least for myself, you know, you've taught me so much about how to do that, you know, and, and so um, I, I think there's so many knock on benefits that, that you've had already, um, you know, and that apply not only to the people they help be successful, but, you know, I think there are people that kind of pick up on how brilliant you are and and try to replicate it to some extent. Um, And I'm sure that's happened more than just myself. Thank you for that. Um, But it's also very fulfilling. (laughs) It really is. It's fun. It's fun to watch. So tell me, so tell me a little bit about, um, um, 
you know, as you're as you're going through the the, the this banking career and key bank, et cetera, um, you know, what 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 made you take the plunge? You know, you you've you know you've been at a pretty successful key bank. You know, is obviously a rock star. Um, what what made you take the plunge to the small uh, niche player and and how did how did that story go? Yeah, that's that's a that's a great question. Um, I probably would have retired from KeyBank if they didn't make a strategic decision that really hurt them. So I was with them in the middle eighty and middle nineties and on up to two thousand. Um, in about that time, nineteen ninety nine and two thousand range. Um, the then CEO was watching, if you remember, all the bubble companies that were coming out of Microsoft, right, in Seattle, um, that created the, the burst. So that teased, that teased up what happened. Um, but in Maine and New England, where I was situated, was a very rich amount of income for the bank, but not a lot of growth opportunity. And so McKinsey came in to do some work with the bank, and I was part of that. Which was, to do what McKinsey does. Yeah. Well, I, I worked with them, you know, because I had a senior VP tag at the time, so I was, I was in the group that would work with McKinsey on different things. And McKinsey said, listen, if you aren't the number one or two in your market and you can't grow at double digits, you know, we got to think about exiting. And the New England region, right, so KeyBank was all across the top of the United States. But uh, in Ohio, right, where society was, the key and society got together, that was the central area. And they even had the key in the baseball stadium and, you know, all that stuff. So they had recognition. Well, when they decided to um, de-emphasize New England, at the time, I went in to the call reports and learned that New England is 58% of their income, really. And they said, we're de-emphasizing it. I remember this guy. I love this guy. Um, his name is Brian McNamara. He was the president of the whole region. Six foot six, hoop player, had personality coming out everywhere. I mean, he was just, and smart as a whip. And I remember the day, because that's when I decided to leave the bank, uh, they decided to fire him and de-emphasize and cut back. And it, it was a it was very, very silly move. And then they had Long Island, which was number three in the market in terms of being in Long Island. But that was their number two right. income producer. And they sold it. They took all that money and resources and went out to Seattle. And I was invited to join them in Seattle. And I said, no. <laughs> And, um, you know, off I went. But uh, that's when they hired all these tech lenders who went after all these um, bubble companies. It quite literally, and of course that all burst up, but it quite literally stopped KeyBank because at the time I was with them, a $90 billion bank was a big bank. It isn't now, but it was then. And right now they're at 120 billion. Wow. It took a decade almost a decade and a half of steam out of them uh, on that one really bad decision. And they can't, they, they're around here still, um, Boston, that's, they have two or 300 employees in Boston and, and I think Long Island they still do, but they don't have the asset base or the girth of the talent team that they used to have. So that 
pushed me forward to look at other opportunities. And I did. And I had to figure out who I wanted, what I wanted to do. I wanted to be more entrepreneurial. And that that's what pushed me into a smaller firm that wanted to grow and diverse. So that was the entrepreneurial part of it. Okay, take this bank. Let's see if we can turn this into from the lollipop and you know, piggy bank bank to, you know, a commercial enterprise. And that, that was my challenge uh, for that uh, 18-year ride. That's really interesting. And I, you know, that that exit, unless you're one or two, you know, that that Jack Welch stuff. I mean, I mean, I I don't know if I have the, an, any credibility in criticizing a guy like, like Jack, but you know, my my read of the situation is that that didn't help at all. You know, and and I don't I don't I I think that I think that that management philosophy. You know, he also had the you know ten percent bottom ten percent or fired. Was that twenty? Yeah, he said ten, but his practice was twenty. Uh, because one of my good friends uh, was was actually president of GE Capital, a guy named Mike Pyle. Yeah, and um, no, no, he's yes. In in public, he would say ten, so he wouldn't scare everybody. But it was in practice closer to twenty. That's incredible. That's just incredible. I mean, I just think you know, um, you know, that there's certainly like this fear component that that compels people. You know, absolutely, there's no question. Um, but it's it's only to immediate action. You know, you can't compel someone for a decade with fear. You know, it just it just it, it doesn't it doesn't work. It, you know, and and they're not going to be creating creating doing the incredibly difficult work of actually creating legitimate value. There's going to be you know passing blame and doing these kinds of things. I mean, I I don't know. I th- there's a reason that the greatest conglomerate you know of all American history you know is is as imploded is <laughs> because I think they tore their culture to bits, um, you know, and, and I think that was no small part of it. You know, this is my humble read on it. Um, but you know, that- no, you're, you're absolutely on the money. I read both Jack Welsh books. I, th- I thought, you know, in the, uh, it was around 2000 when I was trying to be a Jack Welsh expert, I didn't buy into it. Um, I read it and I thought, Oh my God, if this is the way it is, I'm not sure that I'm, I'm a corporate America guy, you know, and, and here he is. But let me, yeah. you know, to dwell on him for just a few more minutes. It's one of those things where, um, you know, if you buy enough companies and roll up enough companies and you have enough winners, you look like a winner. He had plenty of losers. He did. He had plenty <laughs> of losers. Sure. But what is, his sure. biggest winner was the finance company, okay, it was GE Capital. And... And the reason it was a big winner, it was almost a trillion dollars when they finally dismantled it in assets. Yeah. Really? Yeah, it's like, it was 800 million. It was, it was approaching a trillion. And, yeah. and it made a ton of money, okay? Because they were doing not C-grade, but they were doing B-grade paper, which they could price properly. And they were underwriting pretty well because they were hiring good talent. And they weren't regulated. They were not a regulated bank. And so what happened was three years ago, three to four years ago, but time's passing quickly, but the time when they dismantled it, the regulator said, that's it. You're a bank and you're a bank too big to fail. So the double. Yeah. You're too big to fail and you're a bank. And by the way, 
uh, we're going to regulate you. You know, OCC is going to come in here or the Fed picket, but you're going to be regulated and examined. And, you know, the then CEO went, forget that, because, you know, that's and they sold it off to not BlackRock, but Blackstone Capital, another. Anyway, so and if you start, you know, um, dissecting that income away from GE, the whole place was doing this. And, you know, they were also doing um, capital, you know, debt capital to large, you know, companies with engine, you know, picket. Um, right. And, and so, anyway, long story short, uh, you had it right um, with his, you know, because he had an ego, um, big ego. He had um, the thoughts that just because his company was successful, as I said, you know, shotgunning and, and winning on some and losing on others that, he, that right. he would, and he churned people out, scaring everybody half to death. So the, the, the thesis that I had after I never practiced any of it. I, 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 I like I said, I was going to, this is corporate America. I was going to bail out, but it, it seemed to me and how I helped build that bank and helped is the operative word here. I built a great team who they did amazing stuff. But you appreciate them along the way. Simple. I mean, I know that sounds very, very simple. But a, an appreciated employee will work twice as hard for you than a whip. And That's right. genuine, authentic appreciation, too. It doesn't mean you can't have conversations of remedial nature, you know, correcting things. You should because you're going to help them be better. But all the way, you've got, they've got to feel like they're, they, they're worthwhile to the organization and they feel really good about it. If they don't, they're a two or three year employee, not a 10 or 15. You know, we were celebrating 10, 15, 20, and 25 year um, employees throughout that period of time. People stayed on. And if they didn't, some of them, we didn't shine the bright light. The bright light was you're a good person is working hard and doing the right thing with great intent. If you weren't that person, you might leave. <laughs> but it wasn't because, because people, you know, sure. it wasn't because you're, you <laughs> yeah. know, you're unfairly treated <laughs> that, you know, you're, the bright light was going to shine on you. Yeah, yeah that, that, that's fascinating. And I think, I think, you know, I think leaders feel pressure that, you know, if they, if they tell people, you know, how key they are, um, they're going to start shopping, you know, and, and, and I think it's the exact opposite. You know, if you tell someone, Hey, you do great work here and I, I rely on you and I trust you, you know, it's, it's, it's so motivating for, for good people or the people that you want, you know, um, that, that I think it's fascinating. So, so you, so you have this, um, the the McKinsey consultant comes in and tears <laughs> tears Quebec <Key> apart. <laughs> uh, so so who who approached you from um, who approached you from Bank Proper? How did you find them? Oh, it was a um, it was a recruiter. Yeah, a recruiter who um, knew a friend of a friend, and yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, hey, you know how the recruiters go. They, they call everybody and say, you know anybody that would fit this role? And, and the guy's name was Charlie Monahan, And Charlie was the CEO of a small bank 
not too far and we were friends and he was a decade and a half older than me and was kind of a kind of a mentor, a good guy. And so he told the recruiter, call this guy and you know, who, who knows if he's interested kind of thing. And, and he caught me at the exact right time because I really was considering going to Seattle, but I didn't want, they sent me out for a week to look around and stay. And, you know, it rained every single day from sun to sundown. You didn't see sun up to sundown. And, you know, I thought, no, <laughs> nothing wrong with Seattle for those that like Seattle, but it wasn't going to be for me. And I just, uh, I, I got that phone call and, uh, you know, talked to the board and, you know, had some real latitude and they took good care of me. And so I was, it was, it was a perfect exit out. Yeah. So then what, what was, when they brought you, what was kind of the, um, the, the charter, um, if you will, you know, what, what was the initial, Hey Chuck, like, let's get you, let's get you to take the reins on, on the, what, what is that? Yeah. At the time, um, there was this president and CEO who was a, a commercial banker, um, started, you know, started the process. And so he said, when I retire in a, a few years here, you know, really would like, you know, you to consider you know, it being our, our president. And so that, that was the sort of carrot say, yeah, that, that's cool. But what was more cool was when I sat with the board and I said, look, um, there's a lot we have to do. And there's a lot we're going to have to undertake in terms of expense. Commercial bankers aren't cheap. Neither are the financial analysts that support them. Um, but, you know, if you invest in that, um, you know, we can turn this into a, a very highly operating business. And they went, okay. <laughs> And so we started from there, you know, with two branches uh, and a couple hundred million in assets and lollipops. And, you know, we built and built and built and brought on team members. And we were punching way above our weight with some of the lenders that we brought on. You know, we brought on some really highly talented lenders and kind of bought into the bought into the program. And um, many are still here. I'm still there. Uh, so. Yeah, some have retired, <laughs> but many are, many are still there, um, you know, having a lot of fun. So, and, and I think what was also interesting was, you know, the story around, you know, once you once you kind of take 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 over, you know, the the, the niches that you help develop and, and the work with is fascinating and kind of a, a master class on, you know, how to how to, you know, use all the benefits that we have here in America, you know, help people you know, achieve that dream, which is incredibly rare. Um, but you know, you, you were basically turning them out like a factory. It was, it was interesting. And, um, I, I told you the story about the outside in innovation and I won't go into elongated there, but, um, it is the business will take you where it wants to go. And, and the, the, the key is to understand that a niche that you can perform well, that is truly a niche and it's what people want. You know, it's pretty simple. You have those three things and you can actually mathematically calibrate that. You're going to have success. And so the, the Harvard thing was very, very interesting. And it was a successful niche for the bank. You know, a billion, seven in assets when it left. Half a billion, a little more than half a billion, almost 600 million 
was in that search slash um, enterprise value kind of space. And it started with a young man coming out of Harvard looking for uh, to purchase this water purification company in Peterborough, New Hampshire. And he's, you know, and he's up and he had investors. It was his father-in-law and some others, angel kind of thing to support him, but no one was going to sign a personal guarantee. And, you know, bankers in those kind of smaller transactions always had a personal guarantee from the owners. 20 plus. Right? Yeah, 20%. Exactly. And so I went to the board and I said, look, this is a great deal. But we're going to have to change our thinking. And I used KeyBank because we did this, you know, leverage cash flow, enterprise value lending. And I just, you know, bullion cubed it down to a small transaction and tightened it up a little bit on the requirements and covenants and said, let's try it. So we did. And the guy was amazingly successful, like really, really quickly because he's got a Harvard brain. He's going into a smaller business. He just brought it up. 20, 25% in his first six months in terms of revenue. And he was very happy with the bank for doing this because he was getting SBA loan quotes and other things that just didn't, you know, fit, fit the game. And he introduced us, you know, in a, in a few months to four cohorts at Harvard doing the same thing. And so we ended up doing five deals and I got a phone call from a guy named Royce Yudkoff. And Royce is the ROI in Aubrey Investments in Boston. They've done $30 billion worth of transactions, and he's a Harvard guy. He kind of retired from Aubrey and is now the a full prof teaching the ETA, which is entrepreneurship through acquisition. So anyway, that's a backdrop. He, he phoned me, he just called me and said, hey, um, I don't know who Provident Bank is, and you, you guys have financed five of my students. Who are you? <laughs> So I, I said, you know, and, I, and he invited me down to his office in Boston. And I, I, I should have been smarter. I should have Googled him, but he sounded professional and a great guy. So I said, I'll come down. It was a Tuesday. I went down on a Thursday kind of thing. And I drove to Boston, went to his office, top of this huge building. It's not that he had this mammoth desk, but he had this desk in an office that was the size of my house really. And it looked onto the state house and, and he had asked me what I wanted for a sandwich, right? Cause we're going to eat in and I had a turkey sandwich and he had a tuna fish sandwich. We're sitting across from each other and we're, we get chatting. He goes, what do you want to do with this? And I said, I, I don't know, but I can tell you that if there's more opportunity like this, we, we'd like to participate. And so we, we get into engaged in a, in a conversation and a half hour into the conversation, his, you know, assistant comes in. Mr. Yudkoff, is it time for the... No, no, all set. She did it three other times, and this was, we were approaching two hours. And he finally said to her, Mildred, go away, and I'll yell. <laughs> 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 we stayed for three hours talking about what it is I wanted to do in terms of out this niche and how I could craft it. And he gave me advice, and we just went back and forth for three hours. And um, after that, Royce called me and said, I'd like you to come to class because, you know, we we're going to have industry outreach. So the day they talked about senior leverage for these transactions, they had to give you some context uh, at Harvard Business School, 270 or so students 
take uh, financial management of smaller firms, which is the precursor to ETA, entrepreneurship through acquisition. Right. And they slim it down to 80. They boosted it to 90 because it even got higher. But they'll take 90 students out of that. And it's, you know, it's quite competitive because people want to take the ETA class. That's the cool class. So you've got motivated students. And each of them have case studies uh, that they present. And I'm the banker. And so they're presenting to the banker. And we'd go through. Uh, the class is three hours. So we would go through four case studies and each, each one would, you know, bring them. And so I'd have to, I'd have to pretty well prepare. I'd have to study. We're talking about smart, smart people here, you know, so you're not going to go in no prepared. So I studied like crazy. The fortunate part of the last two years that I've done it is that every one of the case studies was a bank prov a case because we, we had done so many out of Harvard. Wow. They weren't trying because we had three or four other bankers in that group, but the case studies were ours, so it was pretty cool. So I didn't have to study as hard, but it was you know I used to say it was Christmas for me. It was the, it was the best day of the year. So much fun because the, you had this collective ninety brilliant minds, you know, young business leaders who are going to go, you know, you know they're going to kill it, um, and then you, you get a chance to. To help shape that. You got them right out of the gate. And, and that's, yeah. So um, Royce has invited me back. I, I'm going to go in. And, and in the context of our Falconer growth, yeah. in a search mode, it's not going to be exactly the same, but I can bring some context to it. So I, I, I got to go. I got to go back. <laughs> so tell them, tell them about what you're doing now. What is, what is Falconer? Oh, I, <laughs> Yeah. Oh, they'll, they'll hear all about it. I've already teased Royce. I send him a, a little note on it. And now he goes, okay, you got to call me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, so, um, before, before you get to Harvard, tell the, tell the, uh, tell the listeners here, you know, what, what is it that, that you're doing over there at Falconer? What, what have you yeah, got launched? What there? we have launched is from start to finish, we have seed, equity capital and using the platforms, you know, and it, we, we uh, determined, and I'll give you the credit for the Sam. We determined that the um, platforms and crowdfunding was the wild west that uh, folks, you know, it's hit or miss. And if you were lucky enough to do your form C and you did it correctly and you might've gotten the attention of somebody that was luck. And, you know, you could have a brilliant idea and a brilliant business plan, but if you don't do it right, if you don't present it well, if you don't, you know, uh, promote it well enough, you know, you're going to feel like you failed and you really didn't. All you did was fail to lure the right people in, look, you know, and, and have the right people looking at your stuff. And so that's, that's sort of the backdrop of CrowdSurf Capital. You know, and our, and our tenants, our 10 tenants of looking at the cap stack, looking at promotional strategy and getting everybody in the, that company ready to promote the business and, and maximize their race and minimize dilution. So that's where it starts, but it's not where it finishes because these businesses will grow. They're going to have other needs <clears throat> and they're actually going to want to grow other than organically. So that's where... Our thoughts on Falconer growth in search, we talked about ETA. Well, 
You don't have to be a Harvard MBA to search. You can be a business owner that has a company that, that you've founded and built and might be 10 million in sales and a million in EBITDA, but you want to be bigger than that. And you and you can create real value by being bigger than that. You need quicker methods to grow. And one, one of those is to search and find businesses like you or vertical integration of you know, supply chain or... And, and through that, there are ways to use the business valuation that you created over the whole time that you've been working your business, right? So that you can leverage that and purchase companies without taking on equity until you do need equity. And you might. And so the time you might, you've already diluted, created the lack of dilution by leveraging, not taking all equity for that for those acquisitions. And, and from that perspective, I think we can be very valuable uh, to helping companies grow. And then the, the second sort of pillar in that growth, other than raising capital and raising rounds, is international. And the international ecosystem that exists that is the best kept secret in the country, and I can't believe that it is. The Department of Commerce has a program called Gold Key that charges only $1,000 to $2,000. It's usually averaged as $1,400. And they will go out and find companies around the world that want your stuff. And they vet them. And they have consulates in those countries. And they actually interview the companies. And they'll make warm introductions to U.S. companies. Up to five. So you can imagine if you have five new customers that are warm leads or you know, prospects, maybe get two or three of them, you can grow sales pretty quickly. And you're not limited to one time doing that. And then the other piece of the ecosystem is through Exim Bank. The Export-Import Bank of the U.S. provides lending solutions so that the local bank, who would not ordinarily take your foreign receivables as collateral, will, because they'll guarantee it up to 90%. And to boot, they're going to require the insurance under it. And the insurance company insures the receivable. So if something happens and they don't pay, they guarantee up to 95% to the business owner. So the risk is um, mitigated. And, you know, if you think about you're a business owner and you want to go overseas, you don't know what to do. I get it. You're, you're scared. And, but if you have these two elements helping, it'll take the risk out of it. In fact, some of the uh, folks that we helped over the years would say, my foreign receivables are better protected than my domestic receivables. So those two um, pillars we, we can bring to the table and doubling sales and EBITDA is on the table easily. And that, that, that really is a compelling uh, statement. Yeah. But uh, Falconer growth is actually more than that. Because, you know, for example... You know, we're, we're working with our new client who's looking for a Series A round. Um, and <clears throat> they're a SaaS company. And SaaS companies look to grow their annual recurring revenue, or they call it ARR. That ARR growth, investment in that growth is what creates the value in the company. So the, the money that we're going to raise for them is really significantly, mostly for a growth. And client acquisition and ARR. ARR growth, so that's that's a that's a that's a great case study for uh, Falconer growth, and then finally, you you bring these companies through that 
process, they've got a couple of decisions to make. They, they, uh, they can grow some more. There's going to be complex questions. So Falconer Advisory takes these companies that have been successful in their growth strategies. And what's next? What's next might be we want to grow more. So we will take more complex growth strategies to heart. But it might be that we're tired and we're ready to go. So do we look at strategic buyers? All right, strategic buyers are companies like them that might be 10x their size or much bigger. And that strategic buyer sees all the synergies, so they're willing to pay more. So they buy the company and, you know, uh, configure it into theirs. And it's a, it's a win for them, and it's certainly a win for the uh, seller. Or they might want to sell to a private equity firm because some of the PE firms have a heavy appetite. They have more than a trillion dollars just sitting out there trying to be invested. So they're willing to pay pay up. That's that's good for the seller. And we know that. Yeah, it's easy to it's easy to 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 pay premiums when you got a gun to your head for you deployment. Better, right? you know? <laughs> if you if we give you a tranche of a billion dollars, you better spend it. Or you'll never get another one. And that, it's incredible. I'm sure you saw the same reports I did on the dry powder that's out there right now. I mean, it's just it's just absolutely nuts. It, it's nuts. And so the the final piece of that, and then I'll I'll be quiet, is that um, if you don't want to sell to a PE firm, you don't want to sell to a strategic. You might want to um, go public so that you can you know ex- really accelerate your growth. That's something we will help with as well. So that's the beginning to end. That's the seed to. To, to exit. Yeah, I, uh, I I I always hesitate to use the the, the cradle because it immediately <laughs> makes me think grave. of the grave. <laughs> but, but, but you know, that's definitely that's definitely the cradles of retirement. Uh, maybe? I don't know. The cradle to retirement, <laughs> right? right. Yeah. Cradle to Ferrari. How about, about that? that yeah. That's better. <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, yeah. So I, I, I think I think the folks probably have. Pretty decent idea, you know what what that looks like, and 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 when to when to call Chuck, you know, um, you know my when to call Chuck is is just about just about any time. Always well, indeed. Well, that's lovely. So so tell me tell me Chuck what what else is uh, what else is on your mind? Well, you know, there's a lot of um, a lot of things actually, and I've, I've shared some of them with you, but. I think of um, tangential business units that can either be started or rolled up, and I think rolled up is probably the better way. But, you know, once you have this um, business owner who exits, we don't have to be done if we have money management as one of our, our, our thought processes, right? So, you know, advisors, financial advisors, really, RIAs. Um, and, you know... It's also a form of recurring revenue. And of course, we all know business valuations can be elevated pretty high with recurring revenue. So that's something that, you know, I'm not saying it's next week, but that's something to think about as we uh, talk about different roll-up strategies. And, yeah. You know, yeah. And, and the other thing uh, that might make some sense down the road uh, would be perhaps looking at, you know, having our own broker-dealer. You know, um, that, that's that's a big one. But if you do, then they can be the broker dealer for the RIA. They can be the broker dealer for, you know, transacting 
business on our own and, and be the broker dealer on transactions, which is more lucrative. So those are thoughts and they're tangential thoughts and aren't absolutely necessary for our success because we'll be successful otherwise, but it's something to something Yeah, to think. I think I think those areas go so naturally to, you know, how we've been, you know, interacting with, with folks already, you know, or, or how you and the team have as, you know, positioned perfectly as, you know, trusted advisor. I think I think that kind of core nugget applies so well to both of those those other components. And um, I think it's really compelling, you know, if you're, if you, you know, if you, if you just help them do their, their exit of their, of their company and took care of them and, you know, made sure that, you know, it went smoothly and, you know, they get some exposure to the Chuck factor. Um, you know, I have a hard time, you know, seeing those conversion rates not being really compelling into the, 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 you know, you know, mini family office. Yeah. You're, you, you nailed it. And I think the, the other thought that I had, and I, I've had, and if Sam Jay ever watches this, he'll, he'll appreciate it. I've, I just had some conversations with him about this. Uh, and I always think niches so that you, you not commoditize and race them to the bottom with everybody else. So one of the niches here for us may be, so we have Frugal, who is a, you know, Indian national who has built his company over in India. Very smart. Great team over there. Has some install base over there and some over here. But really, um, you know, if you think about it, and Ian professes this and he's right, there are only two economic centers in the world that you can raise capital in effectively, and that is uh, New York City and London. You know, and you have Paris as a trailing third, but they're way back. So, you know, if you're um, in India and you're, you're building your company and you want to get to that Series A round, at, which is what we're raising now for Frugal, um, we can be very helpful. And the, the biggest thing in the Indian community is trust. You know, they, ha- they, they stay, they're, they're very fraternal uh, as, as, a, as a culture. And so if you build that trust, if you do a deal, if you have somebody that, um, you know, really uh, vies for you, like we did in this case with Mo, you can build a niche of the because there's numerous, numerous companies being formed in India daily. And, and they're SaaS companies and they're the kind of companies we want to help. I think we can build a bridge from India to the US and help these companies. And once they trust you, uh, the, the competition will, will fall by the wayside. So I, I talked to Sam about, you know, how do we think about uh, capitalizing on that and SEOing that and so forth. So he's putting his brain to work on, on that. But I think that is a natural for it where the business business will take you where it wants to go. So I think that's a, a nice um, tangential niche for us to explore. Yeah, absolutely. I, I always appreciate the. Uh the international component of it, even at the early, early stages, you know, I mean, that's, that's a very complex, you know, dance to do because if you want to raise capital in the United States through an early round, um, you know, through, 
unless it's through accredited, I mean, it's it's very complex. Um, and you need somebody to, to help you understand how that works. The interesting thing about the restrictions, I mean, you could go on forever about policy, but foreign investment in the United States is, is one of the more open. But, you know, if you're trying to get early stage or growth capital, it's a, it's a different equation than if you're, you know, going to buy a factory. Or- Without a doubt. And, you know, again, goes back to our trust matrix. You can't you can't minimize the importance of that, especially you know, with everybody, frankly, but with, with the Indian culture, you have to have that. You have to have um, the good housekeeping seal of approval. If you can do that, though, you can do really well. And, in, in, and like I said, competition can fall by the wayside. They by the way, I, I, um, I don't know if this is a state secret or not, but I, I just talked to someone from Good Housekeeping the other day about, about a board position. <laughs> so that's, that's cracking me up. <laughs> not for you, you know. But <laughs> and uh, yeah, they take that seal they seriously, did, man. It's no they joke. Did, they are not joking around. Um, so yeah, that, that's that's lovely to see. Um, well, well, Chuck, I, I I am very glad that you know whatever I can do to you know get get the word out and and you know um, I appreciate you taking some precious time here, as we always talk about. Time is incredibly precious uh, to speak with me on what is this? The Nth Venture Pod, <laughs> and um, it's it's always a pleasure to I I uh, I certainly never feel like I'm wasting time whenever I'm hanging out with Chuck. Same here. Um, and. Um, I'm I'm very much looking forward to um, to where this thing goes. Any any last messages for for the folks out there, for the wide world? <laughs> well, listen, just uh, stay positive, right? And don't think you have to figure every bit out before you go forward, because you'll figure it out on the way. You know, don't let any of that stop you. Just charge ahead, get stuff done. I'll cheers to that, sir. Hey, you listen, it's going down just like this. This has been an Oddly production. Thank you for tuning in. Our producer is Matt Wells. Our audio engineer, David Woji. I'm your host, Sam Sawhook. Please like and subscribe. That helps get the word out. Have a lovely, lovely day. We'll see you next time.